0: hello everyone and welcome to scream scene the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst my name is ben
1: and i'm sarah
0: thank you for listening to us today how are you doing today sarah
1: I am doing good. Uh, I got to show Over the Garden Wall to a friend who hasn't seen it before Mm -hmm. uh, and then of course turned them to listening to our episode Mm -hmm. on Over the Garden Wall. So
0: good day. Nice. We went to your company Christmas party a couple nights ago. Mm, It's a holiday party. Sure. Specifically. Company holiday party. And it turns out That the number one thing people know about me at your company is this podcast.
1: Yeah. People ask me, so what do you do? And I'm like, oh, well, I do radio. I do D&D and I do a podcast. And they're like, oh, a podcast. That sounds like something that is like within the realm of something I'm familiar with.
0: That I can ask follow up questions on.
1: Exactly. Exactly so podcast follow-up question what is the podcast i'm like oh every horror movie ever made blah 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 and they're like oh interesting okay i don't like horror (laughs) and that's where the conversation usually ends right uh but yeah it it was a very fun party so very had a very fun time how are you doing today
0: um i'm okay i've been battling seasonal depression Mm. lately um Long time listeners to the show will know that I struggle with mental health issues. Um, I have cyclothymia, which is like if you wanted to speed run bipolar disorder. And that sounds great. No. <laughs> and uh, in winter, I, I get hit with seasonal depression uh, really bad. And so, yeah, I've just been trying my best to keep putting one foot in front of the other, keep waking up every day. We've been getting some really nice messages from longtime listeners uh, in our email inbox.
1: Including someone who shared that they watched The Fugitive because of me.
0: Yes. Which
1: is so dope.
0: Yes, and we've heard from people who make Scream Scene episodes into their date nights. So adorable. And we've had nice messages in our Patreon inbox as well. Um so I just wanted to express some gratitude for those because it just really helps knowing how much you guys like the show. Speaking of which, we're going to get around to that appeal.
1: Oh yes. Uh, yes, eventually. we will.
0: Uh it's just we've been very busy lately.
1: Somehow it is December.
0: Yeah, right? November just kind of blinked and you missed it. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Uh, But we are back with a regular episode of the show.
1: So what are we watching this week, Ben?
0: This week, Sarah, we are watching Horrors of the Black Museum from 1959, directed by Arthur Crabtree.
1: That name is familiar. Yes.
0: Okay. He directed Fiend Without a Face.
1: Oh, shit. Yeah, which was the... That movie's dope as fuck.
0: Yeah, that's the stop-motion brain movie. Yes. uh, For those of you who need the reminder. And in fact, uh, this film, Horrors of the Black Museum, is a co-production between Anglo Amalgamated Productions in the UK and American International Pictures in the US. We've seen movies from both of those companies. Um, Anglo Amalgamated was run by Nat Cohen and Stuart Levy, and they distributed AIP pictures in the UK. And then, of course, American International Pictures was run by uh, James Nicholson and Samuel Arkoff, and they distributed AA pictures in the US.
1: So does that mean that this movie is going to have like an American lead?
0: Um, So it doesn't. Oh, Uh, and I'll explain why. But um, it is a 50-50 U.S.-U.K. co-production. Anglo Amalgamated produced the original run of the Carry On films, which is a really famous British comedy series, Um, and they also produced Cat Girl in 1957, so that's Ah. where we've run into them before. But the impetus for the production came from AIP. It came from AIP's Herman Cohen, uh, who we know as the producer of I Was a Teenage Werewolf, I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, Blood of Dracula, and How to Make a Monster. In fact, during How to Make a Monster, which was kind of like a meta movie sort Mm -hmm. of set on the AIP studio's backlot, which didn't really exist. There's like a section of that movie where there's some people being taken on like a studio tour and they're going to visit the set of Horrors of the Black Museum. Oh, that's this movie. Yeah. So this movie is kind of teased in. How to Make a Monster, even though actually this movie was entirely shot in the UK. Um,
1: Maybe the sets were in the UK, Ben. We don't know.
0: No. Uh, (laughs) The idea for this movie, however, came from a newspaper article that Herman Cohen read about the real-life Scotland Yard Black Museum. So can you tell me a little bit about that, Sarah? I understand you've got some juicy tidbits. I don't know if I would say juicy. Well, you know, it's crime stuff. This is like <laughs> peak podcast content. Ah, Sarah? yes.
1: So the Black Museum is actually a moniker for the Crime Museum mm. at Scotland Yard. Let's cast our minds back a bit to 1870.
0: Okay. In
1: 1870, the British Parliament introduced the Forfeiture Act which finally abolished the automatic forfeiture of land and property as punishment for treason and felony. Hmm. Before this act, you did a felony, all your junk is going to the state, and they're going to sell it and make some good money. Got it. Automatically. Now, with this forfeiture act, the state holds on to that stuff, and once you're released, so if you're not hanged or something, Hmm. um, you can ask for that stuff back. Hmm. While holding on to this stuff... An enterprising policeman, Inspector Percy George Neame, uh, was like, what do we do with all this shit? (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, well, maybe we could like try to learn something about crime with all this evidence. And he proposed the Crime Museum, which was established sometime around 1874. Details are a little fuzzy, but that's kind of the date I saw kept coming up. The first exhibits were evidence from uh the murder of this victim um including like evidence that should probably have been like put somewhere safe rather than just on display but that's fine it's the 1870s who cares <laughs> as well as uh, evidence from both old and new cases uh all of this to be shared and displayed for learning purposes
0: so it's was it open
1: to the public or no? No, because it's this learning purposes, the only visitors were uh, internal personnel, whether that be police or members of parliament, that sort of thing. Okay. There was a reporter from The Observer who came to the museum in 1877. So Inspector Neem, he was made administrator of this museum, um, given a desk job after this great idea. <laughs> uh, and the reporter was turned away by Neem um
0: interesting okay
1: so the reporter was like the one who came up with the black museum moniker in like this article that was like it's so bad they wouldn't even let me in it's the black museum
0: got it got it got it okay so i gotta say this has like a big like kind of batman vibe absolutely of like i'm gonna keep all these mementos from all these criminals and put them on display in my little private museum that's only for me
1: well it's for the police department yes but absolutely correct vibes especially because it didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason as to what went on display and what did not Hmm. so some evidence that is on display there are weapons like knives crowbars uh, a cannibal stove sure um there's also uh weapons that are like weird like Mm -hmm. uh there's an umbrella gun and also an umbrella knife
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely <laughs> the shit that I'm going to put on display in my crime museum.
1: There are hangman's nooses, uh, some letters from Jack
0: the Ripper. Mm-hmm. As yeah, that well seems as... like a great. Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> as well as uh, death masks of executed prisoners. Yeah. There's also um, the severed arms of a serial killer.
0: Amazing. But so you're you know, supposed to learn, I don't know. Well, you're supposed to learn that if anyone were to ever have those severed arms put on themselves after a tragic accident, <clears throat> that they themselves would become a serial killer.
1: <laughs> so this museum was closed during World War One and World War Two, and it actually briefly opened to the public in 2015 to 2016, though they did remove some of the grisly exhibits for the public, like huh. those arms. Okay. So it's still open today. They do have some exhibits on loan at other museums that are open to the public. So you Mm. can kind of see stuff that way. And they do have a video tour that you can pay about six pounds to view online. Okay, It's kind of like a like, I feel like. Writing about the Black Museum for a reporter mm. is kind of a like, oh, it's a slow news day. I know, I'll talk about these true crime evidence things that the police look at to study. and yeah. Oh, what's what's going on in there? No, we're not allowed to look. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think what might have also piqued either this reporter or the producers, American producers' interest is that there was a 1952 radio program in the U.S. about the Black Museum. Hmm. Um, it was produced in 1952 in the U.S., it rebroadcast in Europe in 1953, and was produced by Harry Allen Towers. Is that name familiar to you? Yes. He was also the producer for Orson Welles's radio program, The Lives of Harry Lime.
0: Yes, based on the third man.
1: Yes. Because of this, uh, Orson Welles was brought on as host and narrator of this radio program, and it's called the Black Museum, and the idea is that Orson Welles tells stories based on different exhibits in the museum.
0: Yeah, that seems like a slam-dunk idea Absolutely. for a radio show. Like, hey, one of the things on exhibit in this Black Museum is this umbrella gun. Tonight, you'll learn the true story behind the man with the umbrella gun. Like, yeah.
1: Absolutely. So, anthology, mm-hmm. uh, kind of like a proto-night gallery yeah, situation. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, important to note here is that um the stories were like loose if at all based on fact
0: sure because i bet it's a situation of like that seems like a great idea for a show but no one's allowed in the black museum so you don't actually know what's on exhibit and even if you did like aside from some of the most like obvious stuff like hey there's jack the ripper's letters i'm betting that like from Scotland Yard's perspective, it's like, well, no, that's there's like private information here. This isn't for public consumption, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, exactly. it's probably all fucking made up. Yeah, It's also
1: being produced across the pond, as right. it were. So they're not going to be doing research. What yeah, in, doing? The,
0: in the 50s, where like <laughs> the research you'd have to do is like calling up Scotland Yard and them saying no. Exactly. Right. OK.
1: There was a 2002 TV adaptation called The Black Museum of mm-hmm. this radio program but I think the timing of that radio program with like AIP coming up with different horror ideas I think everything kind of lines up that way
0: that makes sense so in terms of how closely horrors of the black museum is based on anything true we basically only have the publicity for the movie given to us by AIP to go on
1: okay which
0: means that you probably shouldn't believe any of it But according to the publicity, uh, Herman Cohen arranged to visit the museum uh, thanks to a contact he had there. um, And he went to visit it with his standard screenwriting partner, Aben Candle, uh, who had written all of those AIP horror movies that I just said Herman Cohen did. Um, And they went to visit the museum for inspiration and all of the implements of murder used in the screenplay for this film were based on exhibits from the museum. And like Cohen in interviews would give like whole stories, right? Like that weren't from the movie, but were from like supposedly the real world basis for each one. But there are no verifiable records of any of these things. So even excusing the fact that you can't see the black museum, like if you go into just newspaper records from the thirties and you're like, Hey, where's the umbrella gun? Like you don't find it. Basically. Okay. I keep using that cause you use that example and I don't <laughs> want to spoil any of the things actually used in the movie.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, the umbrella gun is a real thing that's in there. It was used to kill some kind of official down in British India, but yeah.
0: Yeah, but yeah, it's like people have looked into the stories that Cohen told and like nobody can find any records of any of them. Um, At the time
1: that he supposedly visited, they would have had a guest book.
0: Hmm. Um,
1: so I feel like that's the first place someone would look and if it was not seen that he signed it, uh, I think that means he didn't actually go.
0: Yeah, so I mean... Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Maybe it was off the books. We don't know what's in there. So maybe this stuff was all in there. We don't know. We just only have a huckster's word for it, which like... (laughs) Very trustworthy. Yeah. So half the film's budget, which was $164,000 or £400,000, was provided by Anglo Amalgamated and the other half by AIP. And the film was shot entirely in the UK. Thanks to the co-production Element... It was the first AIP-financed film to be shot in both Cinemascope and Color. Ooh. Arthur Crabtree was hired to direct based on the strength of his work with Fiend Without a Face, um, and also because he was British and cheap. (laughs) Horrors of the Black Museum would actually be the final film in the career of the 58-year-old director who had been working in the industry since 1929. After this, he retired. Okay. Okay. Cohen was the film's producer and he was very hands-on. He went over to the UK. He was on set every day um, to the point where like the film's cast and crew kind of found him a little annoying, like a little Uh,
1: overbearing, a little
0: overbearing, a little micromanagey. But the film's British associate producer, Jack Greenwood, is the one credited as the film's producer. And that was to ensure that the film would qualify mm. for the Edie levy. Yes. So the Edie levy was named for Sir Wilfred Edie, uh who was a British treasury official. And what it was, was a tax on box office receipts. And then if a film qualified for the levy, the tax would be rebated with half going to the exhibitors and half going to the British Film Production Fund, which was basically just like a pool that then movies could draw upon in proportion to their budget. And this was to encourage the production and exhibition of British films, right? It helped subsidize production and it also encouraged exhibitors because they were going to get this rebate if they showed British films instead of American films. In order to qualify for the levy, 85% of the film had to have been shot in Britain or a Commonwealth country. Okay. And you could have no more than three non-British salaries in the budget for the film.
1: So is that why they didn't have an American lead?
0: Yes. Um, and why they said the producer was British. Mm -hmm. Um... Now, the levy did lead to a significant rise in British-produced films in the 1960s, um, as well as a lot of American producers and directors coming over to the UK, like Stanley Kubrick, who came over to the UK in the 60s and basically stayed there the rest of his career. Um, and it also led to an increased popularity and visibility of British films abroad. If you think of a lot of like the big British movies that you can think of in your head. Chances are a lot of them are 1960s films.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, This would include like the James Bond series for Mm -hmm. one thing, which highly benefited from this. Um, The movies of the Beatles, you know, stuff like that. So Cohen had initially wanted Orson Welles for the lead role in this movie, which is like a crime writer is the lead character. Okay. And then he was also thinking maybe Vincent Price but Wells because of the radio show. But the constraints of the Edie Levy and also the constraints of the film's budget meant that they went with um, a British actor instead. And so the lead role is cast with Michael Goff. So Michael Goff is someone we've seen before. He's someone we're going to see a lot of times after. Mm -hmm. Um, He was born in Kuala Lumpur in 1916. Uh, His parents were English and he was educated in England. He sat out World War II as a conscientious objector in Liverpool, and he began acting on film and television in 1948. One of his earliest memorable roles was as one of the two murderers in Laurence Olivier's Richard III in 1955, along with Michael Ripper. And in 1958, he appeared as Arthur Holmwood in Horror of Dracula, Mm -hmm. uh, beginning an association with the horror genre that would last the rest of his career. As a fan of his horror films, Tim Burton cast Michael Goff as Alfred in the 1989 Batman movie, a role that he would reprise in three sequels opposite, like, three total Batman. He also played Alfred in two audio dramas and two different ad campaigns (laughs) uh, for Diet Coke and for OnStar. Hmm. His last role in live-action films was 1999's Sleepy Hollow for Burton and his final roles, period, were voice roles in Corpse Bride and Alice in Wonderland, also both for Tim Burton. And he passed away in 2011 at age 94.
1: That's a good run.
0: hmm The rest of the cast is made up of the usual assortment of British character actors, including Geoffrey Keane, who might be best known for playing the Minister of Defense in six James Bond films from 1977 to 1987. For the film's U.S. release, AIP's James H. Nicholson felt the movie needed an additional gimmick uh, to compete with the gimmicks of William Castle. So to this end, a 13-minute prologue was added featuring psychologist Emile Franchel explaining the science of hypnosis and basically um, telling the audience that they were going to be hypnotized so that the film's use of color and sound would heighten the sensation of terror while watching the movie. Now, using um, visuals and audio to control an audience's emotions is just what movies do. Yeah. But um, the way that Franchelle explains it is like, you know, your, your mind associates certain colors with certain feelings, and so I'm going to hypnotize you to, to feel those things and, and you'll think you're actually in the movie
1: you know how this gimmick is very different from william castle mm. it's 13 minutes long
0: yes um he like introduces himself as an eminent psychologist and expert on hypnosis he shows you how hypnosis works there's a bit where he hypnotizes a woman not to feel pain and then sticks pins through her arm and and yeah and then he like hypnotizes the audience explains how he's going to hypnotize the audience Cohen thought that this prologue, which ran only in the U.S. version, um, and it should be stated the film was not shot with this idea that it was going to hypnotize the audience in mind. This is just a guy at the start of the movie saying this is going to happen. So Cohen thought that this prologue was hokey, uh, but audiences apparently went nuts for it. Like, in theaters, people loved this shit. Okay. Um, When the film played on American TV, the prologue was Actually, removed, however, because of the FCC regulations against hypnosis and subliminal messaging on TV that had happened oh. because of um, My World Dies Screaming.
1: Yeah, that's funny.
0: Now, as per AIP's sort of standard methods of movie making, uh, a second feature was produced so that this could be shown on a double bill. And that second feature is a comedy film called The Headless Ghost. Uh, Which was written in two weeks and shot in three weeks.
1: Oh, yeah. So interesting. So
0: five weeks to make that movie.
1: Well, they three weeks to shoot, but only two weeks to write. Maybe that means that they did some like retakes. You know, (laughs) Um, but I presume we will not be watching this since it's a comedy.
0: Yeah. So it's basically a bunch of teenagers spend the weekend in a haunted castle, uh, and there's like a headless ghost, and they have to like solve. The Headless Ghost's like murder okay, or something. So it's like a
1: proto-Scooby-Doo.
0: Yeah, very proto-Scooby-Doo. No, The Headless Ghost has actually been remade uh, a couple of times, including as an episode of the television series Goosebumps. (laughs) Fascinating. Anyways, um, this double bill was released on April 29th, 1959, and it was a smash hit with a box office of over $1 million. Damn. The Headless Ghost was largely panned, as being garbage, but Horrors of the Black Museum attracted controversy due to its high level of gore and sadism. Mm. AIP might have valued gimmicks. You know, they walked away from this seeing that gimmicks worked, that um, advertising that the movie was shot in Vista uh, was successful. But Anglo Amalgamated learned quite a different lesson. They learned that sadism sells and they would apply that for their future films
1: (laughs) um so if there's like a lot of gore and we're seeing color Mm -hmm. you can kind of see a trace from horrors of dracula Mm -hmm. beyond the casting of michael goff which is interesting you can really see that like growth and
0: yeah exactly so horrors of the black museum was released on dvd by vci entertainment that dvd is out of print I am unaware of any other releases of the film, so good luck finding (laughs) the DVD. Um, To the seven seas. Yeah. Uh, That DVD is the British version of the film with the American 13-minute prologue included as like an optional special feature.
1: Okay. Which version will we be watching?
0: So the only difference is the inclusion of that prologue or not, so... Do you want to watch the 13-minute prologue explaining how hypnotism works? I don't. So then I'm we'll sorry. watch the British version that doesn't have it. Okay. All right. Cool.
1: Um, all right. Well, folks, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Horrors of the Black Museum from 1959, directed by Arthur Crabtree.
0: See you on the other side, everybody. <laughs>
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Horrors of the Black Museum from 1959, directed by Arthur Crabtree. Ben? Thoughts?
0: Um, so I really wanted to like this. Yeah. So it's a real shame it isn't good.
1: I th- I think it's just trying to do
0: a bit too much. I think it's fairly good. It is indeed trying to do a bit too much.
1: This is a case of them being like... I don't know what's going to work, so let's just do a bit of everything. Yeah. And they do find something that works, but you do have to wade through all the other things.
0: It it really has a feeling of like, we don't know where the trends in horror are going right now, so let's just do all of them.
1: Exactly. And some of these trends are dated,
0: mm-hmm.
1: some are not, mm-hmm. uh, and the ones that are not... Or what they do well, so...
0: Interesting. Okay, I think we're going to have an interesting talk.
1: Okay. Uh, Well, let me give the plot. Sure. It opens with murder. (laughs) In this case, uh, a woman receives an anonymous package. She thinks it's from an admirer. She opens it up. Oh, it's binoculars. She takes a look through them, through the window, and ping! Spikes into her eyes, into her brain, and she's dead. Gruesome. This is the third strange murder in two weeks, and the police are doing what they can, but not having much luck. Journalist and crime writer Edmund Bancroft comes in for, you know, his story, his column, and kind of comments with the police that, Oh, this binocular spike thing, that, that seems like something you'd find in your block museum.
0: Yeah, I think it's actually called out that, like, it's a replica of something in the Black Museum. Yes, yes, that's true.
1: Now we follow Bancroft after he leaves the police station. Um, He goes to Eggie's Antique Store, um, where he seems to buy antiques here a lot. Uh, And this time he finds a knife that's, like, wavy.
0: Yeah, a Flambergé knife.
1: The official name wavy knife, Mm -hmm. um, and he buys that. He's super stoked about it. Um, He heads home and gives that to his assistant, Rick, um, to put in uh, their own personal black museum in the basement, and they do have quite an extensive collection here. Then we see Bancroft goes to his doctor, Dr. Ballin, who comments on Bancroft's, like, almost state of shock, and this is, like, the third time you've come to see me, and it's always after these most recent murders like I think you're taking your work too seriously um and Dr. Ballin also says that like you know Bancroft like you're not in the best of health he walks with a cane blood pressure's all over like I think you overworking yourself is going to kill you uh we also see that Dr. Ballin to his nurse is thinking that Bancroft might need to be institutionalized at least for a short time um to help with this like health issue Finally, we see Bancroft goes to his girlfriend's house. Her name is Joan. Uh, she has kind of a, a Harley Quinn accent in by way of England.
0: It's it's like if Marilyn Monroe had a Cockney accent.
1: Uh, yeah, that's what I said. Mm-hmm. Now, they have a fight because Bancroft's a dick. Joan's yeah. not the best either. She says some very ableist things, and it's, it is quite rude, but... Bancroft isn't good either,
0: yeah, um, I also think that the word "girlfriend" in your description of her is doing a lot of heavy lifting because I think it's it's pretty heavily implied that she is um sort of a a paid uh escort uh, for yes. Bancroft
1: to the point where um she's basically paid to stay in her apartment all day, yeah, theoretically she can leave, but
0: yeah, real um hide and ivy vibes,
1: yes. Now, during that fight, Joan slips that um, she knows that Bancroft knows who the murderer of these latest murders are because he just talks because he's a bit of a megalomaniac. That kind of seals her fate. So she goes out in the town solo and is having a great time. She's like, I want to live. My parents died by a bomb, and I want to live and not be stuck at home. And then she goes home and, you know, goes and lays down her head on her pillow. And when she looks up, she sees some kind of disfigured man and a guillotine. That chop comes down and uh, kills her.
0: Guillotine. Listen, guillotine. All, the, all the British people in this movie say guillotine, and I just I can't have that continue. <laughs> On the show. I've
1: always said guillotine and you've always corrected me when we've brought it up on the podcast. So I, I apologize. I think it's because they all said guillotine that I, I fell back in.
0: No, no, totally.
1: (laughs) Everyone in Joan's building hears her scream before the blade hit. And so they see the disfigured man running away. They think he's like some kind of old guy, but he was really fast and also wearing teenager clothings, (laughs) uh, similar to what Rick wears. Hmm.
0: Same haircut as Rick,
1: too. Same haircut. It's 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 Rick. And Rick just has makeup on. Yeah. Well, in the context of the movie, it's more than makeup. But uh, yes. So let me see. It's like the next day, Bancroft is out promoting his new book, Terror by Night or something like that. When Superintendent Graham shows up and he's like, yeah, I think this is all schlock. But, you know, here's to you, Bencroft. By the way, we happen to catch the murderer. Um, his name is Tom Rivers and he's confessed to the past four murders. And Bencroft is like, really? Hmm. You've caught someone. Hmm. And it turns out that Rivers is actually uh, someone who is like a mental patient, has schizophrenia, and basically is willing to confess to any crime. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, Bancroft heads to Eggie's Antiques uh, just, you know, to browse. And Eggie's like, yes, I have this new thing for you. And it's going to be $12 million. And he's like, $12 million? 1,200 pounds. That's like $12 million with the conversion rate (laughs) and inflation. (laughs) No. Um, And Eggie's like, yeah, I know that the murder weapons in like these past few murders have been things that I've sold you. So I want some blackmail money. And Ben and I are just like, tale as old as time, don't blackmail murderers. Yeah.
0: How many times have we said that on this show? I mean, probably three times. It's It's been so many times, Sarah. <laughs> we say it all the time. So
1: she gets got by uh, uh, some like ice picker uppers.
0: Yeah. Ice tongs to the throat.
1: Yeah. Picker uppers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> bancroft goes home everything's going great uh he has a supercomputer in his basement the, um for he, like no real reason
0: the black museum that he has in his basement is basically like a reverse bat cave yeah yeah it's like a crime layer
1: and um dr ballin arrives because he's like really concerned about bancroft's health and when he comes in he's brought into like the the black museum and he sees the supercomputer and he sees that like there are all these like weapons everywhere and he's like it's you bancroft you're the murderer but don't worry submit yourself to me as uh like a doctor and a patient and we'll get you the mental help that you need and bancroft is like yes um okay well just come with me for a little bit a little bit and send little bit to the right, right in the way of my death right? perfect, zap, and kills his doctor. Now, Rick is here as well, and Rick um, has said earlier in the film that uh, he just can't not follow Bancroft's orders, like, he can't even, like, think about disobeying, um, and we see that here. Um, Rick is told, okay, pick up the body, Put the doctor into the acid vat. Now we got a skeleton. Cool. Bancroft is off to go get his, like, weekly drink or whatever. Like, I forget where he's going. He's
0: going off to a book signing.
1: Right. Um, And Rick is like, well, I just did this. Okay. (laughs) Now, the person who Rick has confided this, like, hypnotism thing to is his secret girlfriend, Angela. Angela uh, is uh, someone who's like, yeah, but now you need to do what I tell you to do because I'm your girlfriend and fiance and you need to confide in me. And is a little controlling? Is a little controlling. But you know... British film and misogyny. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah. She's oh, a woman,
0: Sarah. Yeah. They're all like that.
1: Exactly. Um, unfortunately, this movie um, leans into that, which I we will get into the discussion. Yes. But anyway, so Angela, she doesn't do anything that warrants... The violence that happens but anyways no. so um when bancroft comes back rick and angela are making out in the black museum for some reason yeah and- honestly
0: everything that happens from this point on is rick's own damn fault because that was a stupid decision yeah like your employer has a secret murder basement and you're like i can't tell you girlfriend about my employer but I can make out with you in his murder basement that he's told me never to bring anyone to. Like, come on, Rick.
1: Yeah. So the thing about Rick and Angela is they've kept their relationship a secret to everyone because Rick was like, well, I need to tell my employer before we tell anyone else and just hasn't told Bancroft yet. And this is, you know, Bancroft finds them and learns that way. So that's a great start to this relationship. Yeah. And so Bancroft kind of like... You know shuffles angela off like go wait in the living room it's fine and then just loses it on rick because like this was supposed to be our secret area and yeah, like robin. my secret area but our secret area where like we do things
0: yeah robin let a girl into the bat cave yeah and, and batman's
1: super mad about it. exactly because you know rick you can't trust women because mm-hmm. women will like tell on you like if you're doing murders they'll tell on you if you're not doing murders they'll tell on you um you can't trust them with anything
0: yeah they'll blackmail you the first time you get into a fight she's gonna like use this against you
1: yeah women are just the fucking worst it makes sense that eve was the one who was like tempted before adam like just the full misogynistic tirade
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and then he shifts gears a little bit and ben croft going on uh but you know rick you or obedient, that's like your best defining feature, and um, all this, all that the light touches will be yours because you're so obedient to me you know it's it's my fault that you you've fallen into the hands of this woman because it's been so long since our treatments this treatment reader, listener, is um, another Jekyll and Hyde thing.
0: Yeah, I mean that's basically all the explanation we get.
1: yeah. So, Bancroft takes out a vial, he's like, blah, 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 this, you know, Jekyll and Hyde explicitly t- calling into this. And yeah, this, no, like-, like,
0: literally the explanation yeah. we're given for this vial is, you know about Jekyll and Hyde, Rick? Turns out it was a true story, jabs the needle in him, and that's basically it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's why, it's not hypnotism, it's this vial stuff that makes Rick so obedient, but then also turns into that hideous monster that we saw leaving Jones flat. hmm Um, so he injects Rick, uh, Rick and Angela go out as planned on their date to the fun fair and, uh, while out on the tunnel of love, Rick stabs Angela with that curvy knife, the wavy knife. What did you call it? The flabbergasted?
0: Flamberger. It just means that the blade looks like a flame.
1: Oh, that makes sense. Sure.
0: Yeah. He stabs her right in the titty.
1: (laughs) I mean, he does. I can't, (laughs) I can't deny that um and then he goes off running uh king kong style up onto the side of the ferris wheel now bancroft is out gloating um with the cops definitely not a suspect at all
0: gloating to the cops uh, I, that's a key distinction Gloating
1: to the cops about how they uh the person who they had arrested was uh not the real person and so bancroft goes with the cops to the fun fair. rick upon seeing bancroft is like, Mr. Bancroft, I did what you told me to do. And Bancroft's like, shoot him. I don't know what he's saying. Just shoot him. Rick jumps off the Ferris wheel and lands onto Bancroft, stabbing him in the heart. Now, after leaping, Rick was riddled with bullets, so now they are both dead. And that's the end, with the cops being like, well, I guess he, he's a crime writer and he wrote, he, he did crimes so he could write about them. That's, that's what we're going with. mm mm-hmm. The end. So I
0: I can see how this movie was successful. Yeah. Because it delivers on a lot of base thrills, uh, namely sex and violence, without asking a lot from the audience in return. Like you're you're led by the hand through the story you're not really having to pay attention everything that happens is pretty obvious and like easy to see coming from a mile away and you know there are hot babes you get to see one of them in her underwear and then like there's lots of blood and like decapitations and stabbings and 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 so on and so forth
1: yeah i think the gore and the death all of that is well paced in that mm, regard. And yeah. it even feels like it ramps up. Even if like on paper, I don't know if like structurally it actually does ramp up, no, but it, it feels like it does. It
0: starts with cool gadgets and it just ends with stabbings. So it, it definitely doesn't ramp up, but you're right that it, it feels like it. Um, mostly because it starts with characters we know nothing about and moves on to characters we we actually care about. Yeah. I think that Michael Goff gives a really fun scenery chewing performance here he's basically carrying the movie
1: he is really good yeah i really enjoyed his performance there are times where like when an actor is given a part that is like just so explicitly misogynist and chauvinist it it can be really hard to handle mm. and what i liked about michael goff here is that you know it, he he doesn't like make it palatable by being like charming or something Mm. right where it's like well like a don draper kind of deal right um he just does it really well and i don't know he there's maybe it's the british accent (laughs) that like helps it carry but like no he's just
0: he's really good he's
1: really good
0: um so the
1: way he will turn from trying to be charming to like charming to the characters and then get so mad like when he got so mad at joan Mm. and he like pushed everything off the table and stuff like he's going for it
0: yeah and i mean to be fair like you know the way you put it was like joan says some ableist language she like grabs his cane away from him so he can't walk and then like calls him a bunch of slurs so yeah
1: she says that you're not a man because you use a cane
0: yeah that's kind of what i was meaning yeah um the thing i do want to point out about goff's performance here is he was arthur Holmwood in dracula which yeah. was like the heroic part. In Dracula, the romantic lead. And so I think audiences of the time would find it a twist that mm-hmm. he's the murderer, that they would go in and expecting him to be the hero because of how strong like typecasting was in the industry back then. Right. What is interesting is that after this movie, um, I mentioned in the context setting that he has like a long history in horror movies after this. Yeah. Basically he is now slimy villain territory ah, like
1: well that's because he does it so well yeah
0: so so this is kind of his transition from from hero to villain the problem for me is that the script really fails to do anything with Bancroft yeah to make it all tie together like yeah Goff's performance is sort of bringing it all together and makes it seem all tied together but the script never actually really gets inside Bancroft's head to tell us like what makes him tick. Like even when he's giving big speeches about why he does what he does, they feel like his own justifications for it, not what's actually going on in his, in his brain.
1: And like the doctor gives a little bit as well about like him being mad
0: but, yeah. but, like,
1: it's not really anything beyond just, like, you're mad, Ben Coughed.
0: Yeah, like, the doctor's approaching it from a um a physical health perspective of, like, yeah, when you commit murders, you go into, like, these weird, like, excited states. And so, like, it's pretty obvious you get excited by murder. But it's like, okay, so he commits murders so he can write about them. Like, that, that's one thing. But that's that's actually not insane. That's actually, like... Legally speaking, that's like a sane motive for murder. Yes, yes. Um, But we know from his doctor that he is insane. So then it's like, okay, well, what's up with his psychology? Like, is he a sadist? Well, it's not that he gets off on like causing pain to people. He does seem to get off on power.
1: Definitely power. Definitely the idea of like wanting to create like the perfect crime and like not getting caught and kind of flaunting that. But
0: like why what's the connection between all of these things like you can kind of draw it yourself by being like oh well you know intellectual power that he's smarter than the police and like you know direct power over rick and like the power of life and death over victims and things like that but then it's like is his disability supposed to like tie into that and what's the deal with his disability like they make enough of a deal about the fact that he walks with a cane Mm -hmm. that you would think that at some point we'd get like an explanation like it's an old war wound or like a woman stabbed him in the thigh or like something like some kind of origin story for it because it seems like it's super tied into his deal but we never like explicitly get a connection yeah like again it's something where you can draw the lines for yourself if you want by going well you know joan makes fun of how like he's not really a full man because of his disability, so maybe that's why he craves power or whatever. But, like, the movie doesn't do that yeah. for you. Um, the movie doesn't really explain how his misogyny is tied into any of that, even though that's clearly a big part of it, because all of the victims are women. So And,
1: like, the police even comment on that
0: mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. well. Because so, it's, it's part of the killer's pattern and stuff. So, like, in a modern movie, you would expect... There to be some sort of, you know, criminal profile here that would tie it all together. You know, his mom was mean to him as a kid or whatever the hell. And we don't really get that.
1: No, it's kind of a case of like throwing a bunch of stuff into the soup to see what will really make it work. Um, Because like, what's the deal with the supercomputer? That is never explained at all. Like it's implied that he's like trying to come up with like the perfect crime or the perfect murder weapon. Or, like, the murders of the future. Yeah, he and goes... Wait, wasn't that a movie?
0: Yeah. Crimes of the Future? <laughs> the, the only explanation we get for the supercomputer and the death ray is him being like, well, my black museum is so much better than Scotland Yards because Scotland Yards is all willy-nilly and mine is
1: curated
0: yeah it's it's bespoke and (laughs) um theirs is just it's a dead museum because it's all things of the past and mine is a museum of the past present and the future yeah the Jekyll Hyde sci-fi stuff is kind of what pushes it a little too far for me in terms of the like spaghetti strategy shotgun approach here like yeah, Rick could have just been hypnotized. I mean, if you that you're... would
1: tie in with like the gimmick, the, the
0: Hypno Vista. Yeah, like we had thirteen minutes of a dude explaining hypnotism to us at the start of the movie. He doesn't need to be like a weird monster. Like even if it's an injection, like why does he physically transform? That doesn't make sense. Those monsters
1: are in, in horror movies, I guess. And like it... there's it's a lot of those kind of cases of just putting the tropes without yeah. really knowing why yeah, they're it's, here.
0: It's like the idea that Bancroft knows how to do murder because he's a crime writer. Okay, cool. That tracks. I'll believe that. But the idea that like that also makes him like a computer scientist <laughs> and he knows chemistry enough to like make a Jekyll Hyde serum. Like, Well, he doesn't say that he made it. But then where did he get it from? In
1: this universe, Jekyll and Hyde was real, Ben.
0: I don't know, man. It's just like, it it really, (laughs) that's the stuff in the movie that really makes you realize how thrown together the rest of the movie is. Like the whole movie is just kind of haphazardly thrown together, but I feel like if you didn't have those things, you might not notice it it. as much. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: What I do like here is that the police, they're not bumbling, but boy, are they ineffectual. Yes. Like they are tangential to what happens
0: yeah you get a sense at some point like and again it's like subtextual it's like the the actors are doing more work than the script you get a sense that the superintendent suspects Bancroft but he doesn't really suspect Bancroft in time to like do Do anything anything. about it yeah
1: yeah and you kind of hope that like the uh, crimes of passion or uh suddenness of needing to kill Eggie or the doctor or something would help lead to Bancroft's capture or end and that doesn't have anything to do with it
0: right yeah because like if we were in a police procedural that would be the turn because it would go from oh he murders random sexy young babes who have no family or connections to oh an old antique shop owner and Bancroft's doctor are dead
1: yeah there's just nothing that feels like oh the noose is tying around his throat no it's just like yep the creator's monster kills him <laughs> yeah it
0: turns against him oh. uh, speaking of tangents even the black museum connection is largely tangential and basically yeah. goes away after the first act like it's set up it could sp- just
1: as easily be um like a, a wax museum like the the creepy like macabre version of that that people had
0: he can have a museum of crime and it not be tied to scotland yard's black museum at the start of the movie it's like the connection is there like it's like these binoculars are based on a pair of binoculars that are in the black museum and bancroft's in his writing like using that to suggest that like well maybe someone on the police force is like stealing things from the black museum and using them to kill people like maybe it's the police themselves doing the murders or whatever and then That goes away. Um, And everything else after that has nothing to do with the Black Museum and just has to do with like his own, you know, ingenious crime things. So there's just like, yeah, there's a lot of tangents here. One thing that is weirdly consistent, um, although it's consistent with other movies, it's consistent with Cohen and Candle's other AIP movies is kind of the basic setup of older, bitter, murderous, older man with his like duped teen assistant who does all the dirty work
1: yeah the poor teens like
0: if he if they shot this in the u.s it would have been Whit Bissell as bancroft right i was
1: thinking that too i I will say it does have more in common with like the i was a teenage frankenstein than i was a teenage werewolf but
0: Mm. or like how to make a monster yeah yeah
1: it's definitely a step removed from it but the those pieces are here for sure
0: yeah and then the other thing that's consistent throughout this movie is that it's very misogynist
1: yeah but i mean it's uh Textual. It's not just like happenstance, right? So I have to like acknowledge that, yeah, the murderer is the most misogynistic person. Yeah, it is the
0: villain who's misogynistic. But I think it bleeds into the script in a way. Because yes, it's just the villain who's a misogynist textually in the story, but in terms of like their representation as characters women only exist in this movie to get talked shit about and then murdered.
1: Yeah, no, the casual, uh, and dare say, like microaggressions against women are very prevalent here.
0: Yeah, I mean, you've got Joan, who is an implied sex worker, but is like every negative stereotype about that kind of person ever, right? Like she's just like all in it for the money and she's just like constantly belittling Bancroft and she's very clearly like, super shallow and she's clearly just using men like when she goes out to the bar there's like a guy who's buying drinks for her and then she's like yeah i was just using you for the drinks i'm not going home with you fuck you and it's portrayed as like she's a shitty person and then you have the antique store dealer who like is a blackmailer and is like you know yeah i don't care about turning you in to the police as long as i get mine
1: yeah and she talks about like ripping people off and Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, Also, she's old. Yeah. And it's like underlined like this woman is old and unattractive. Let's call attention to it every time.
0: Yeah. Like at first, Bancroft's like, well, you're safe from being murdered because all of the people getting murdered are hot young babes. And then we have Angela, who is probably like the least at fault from an objective perspective. Like she's just rick's girlfriend she's
1: just trying to be a part of rick's life yeah unfortunately rick's life is supposed to be a secret
0: yes sidebar the actor who played rick was gay uh and lived for 45 years with his partner in a house that he bought with the money from being in this movie
1: dope good um, for him yeah. that explains the lack of chemistry though
0: yes um <laughs> but like angela just gets murdered and forgotten about And yeah, her only crime is that she wanted Rick to tell her a bit about himself and maybe stand up to his boss who seemed to have some kind of unnatural hold on him. (laughs) Um, So Angela's murder like left a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah. But I will say that at the time her getting murdered was probably really shocking because she's clearly, like, our female romantic lead, and these movies should end with, like, her getting threatened and then getting saved.
1: And that's the one murder that we see explicitly on screen. Hmm. Everything else, um, like, the the tongs to the neck for the antique owner, um, that happens, like, slightly off screen, out of frame. Like, everything... You know, you know what's happening and it's gory. Absolutely. You see the
0: aftermath and you see like immediately before, but you don't actually see the axe on screen. But
1: this, we see the knife
0: go in. Yeah. So like, I'll give it that as a horror movie that that's effective. Yeah. Um, but just like it's one bit of misogyny after the other to the point where even though, yes, textually all the misogyny is coming from the bad guys, there's nothing in the script to really balance it out. So the movie ends up kind of feeling very misogynist as well.
1: Yeah. Well, let's move on to ranking.
0: Okie dokie. So I have just got a spot picked out.
1: Oh, okay. Let me give you my range then. Okay. By the way, listener, we did calculate what was the last British horror movie we watched, and that was Quarters of Blood from episode 256, and it ended up not ranking. Mm. So that's not going to be any kind of help.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And we we did do um, Hounds of the Baskervilles, but we did that as a horror adjacent.
1: Yes. Now, Crabtree's last movie that is on the list is Fiend Without a Face. That is ranked at number 33. Uh Way too high for this movie. Uh Way too high for Horrors of the Black Museum. As I started looking down, I kind of came to, you know, I was a teenage werewolf. That's at 63. Uh Um, I feel like that's... That movie is significant for the teen stuff. This movie isn't hugely significant uh, in that same sort of way. Um, so it continued looking below. For the record, I Was a Teenage Frankenstein is at number 75. And I thought like, you know, they're a little comparable. Mm-hmm. I can count. This feels a little closer. Particularly though, my eyes were drawn to another British horror movie in this range, which is The Abominable Snowman at mm. 70. Yeah, That movie is so good way better than this movie um so definitely going below 70 also below here we have curse of the undead which is the vampire western yes fucking yes love that movie never will say a bad word about that movie (laughs) i love it uh below that is um mysterious the ultra tumba which was um also um the, the pit of Dr. X or something like
0: that. Yeah. Um, that's the movie where the two scientists make a bet about who can tell the other about what it's like to be dead. And there's a convoluted storyline involving a girl and her father. And, yeah. Yeah.
1: Another case of lots of pieces in the stew here. Yes. Um, I think that is a pretty comparable place for horrors of the Black Museum. So that's kind of, you know, I'm looking around 72, but as far as my range goes, I would say, you know, 71 down to 75. So that's Curse of the Undead to I Was a Teen Frankenstein.
0: All right. Well, high five, Sarah, Oh. because my spot was 72. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Um, oh. Basically, I decided instead of looking at Crabtree, I would look at Cohen. Um, I made kind of the same conclusions about this being worse than Teenage Werewolf. So I looked for Teen Frankenstein, you know, and looking around that area and seeing like Blood of Dracula, Black Sleep, It Conquered the World. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is better than those. Like, just from a production standpoint, right? We're in color. We got CinemaScope. We got blood. We got gore. But then, like, winking my way up, I came to the same conclusions about Embominable Snowman and Curse of the Undead. I'm like, no, 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 no. Those are way stronger. And looking at, yeah, The, the Black Pit of Dr. M, I think is what it is in English, but Mysterios <laughs> de Ultratumba or Mysteries from Beyond the Grave would be the literal, you know, translation. Um, that movie was kind of a mess this movie's kind of a mess but i think the thing holding it together is michael goff and i don't think Mysterio's de ultra tumba had a similar performance holding it together so i'm boom 72 that's what i want to do and yeah we were on the same page here exactly
1: oh sweet i will just say below that is uh the return of dracula at 73 that's um
0: dracula comes to suburbia
1: Yeah. And so that had some really interesting themes about like an immigrant story and stuff that it was like playing with, but not really doing much with. And I think that's comparable with Horrors of the Black Museum with the idea of like misogyny Mm -hmm. and playing with that, but not really doing much with it. So just to point out comparable there, but yes, cool. Love this.
0: All right. So coming into the list at the new number 72 is Horrors of the Black Museum from 1959, directed by Arthur Crabtree.
1: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore ScreamScene.
0: ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review or just telling a friend about the show, whether that's on social media or over the phone, perhaps.
1: Phone calls.
0: You can also help the show out by heading over to our Patreon and becoming a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. You, uh throw us that buck a month and we'll thank you on the show. You up that support to $5 a month and you'll get access to regular bonus cut audio from past episodes. And at $10 a month, you get access to regular bonus, like writing from Sarah and I, all kinds of stuff. There's a ton of stuff that we put out for October for patrons. And once you become a patron, you can access like the whole back catalog. So yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff there. Um, Most exciting of course is our monthly poll for patrons on what we will be doing for our horror adjacent bonus episode each month. And for December, it's looking like it's gonna be
1: Uh we are officially calling it it is the nightmare before Christmas.
0: Yeah. Which like not I'm not I'm not surprised. Y'all. No, No. Um so if you want to get in on the vote for January, that's patreon.com slash scream scene podcast.
1: So Ben what are we watching next week?
0: Next week, Sarah we are watching a movie that is often ridiculed, but just might be an underappreciated gem. It's The Killer Shrews.
1: Shrews like um, the animal?
0: Yes. Giant, monstrous shrews. Okay. I've shrews never... the size of a dog.
1: <laughs> I guess that would make them giant. Um, I've never heard of this. I am intrigued.
0: It's got a pretty cool poster. Okay. But we'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.